Welcome to Music History Monday for April 19th, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is To the Memory of an Angel. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the posthumous premiere on April 19, 1936, 85 years ago today, of Alban Berg's breathtaking violin concerto. It bears a double dedication to Louis Krasner, 1903-1995. Krasner was the violinist who commissioned and premiered the concerto, and to the memory of an angel, the significance of which will be explained in due time. Albano Maria Johannes Berg was born in Vienna on February 9, 1885. He died there 50 years later, on December 24, 1935. Berg was born into a highly cultured family that traveled in the highest circle of Vienna's cultural elite, at a time when Vienna was home to a staggering amount of talent. Berg numbered among his friends Gustav and Alma Mahler, the writers Stefan Zweig and Karl Kraus, the architect Adolf Luz, and the artists Gustav Klimt and Oskar Kokoschka, among others. <laughs> That's quite a crew. A tall, he grew to be six foot five in height, gangly, shy child, the young Berg was more interested in literature than music. A few elementary piano lessons aside, Berg had no formal musical training whatsoever until 1904, when he was 19. That was when he began composition lessons with the great Viennese modernist Arnold Schoenberg, 1874-1951. It was a musical apprenticeship unlike any other before or since in the history of Western music. In 1949, 45 years after they met and 14 years after Berg's death, Schoenberg recalled their first meeting. Quote, when he came to me in 1904, he was a very tall youngster and extremely timid. But when I saw the compositions he showed me, songs in a style between Hugo Wolf and Brahms, I recognized at once that he had real talent, unquote. The 30-year-old Schoenberg accepted Berg as a student because he saw something in him that not even Berg knew existed. In a mere seven years, Alban Berg went from knowing next to nothing about the technical workings of music to being one of the most technically polished and brilliantly original composers of all time in just seven years. In 1906, at the age of 21, Berg received an inheritance from an aunt, an inheritance that made the lucky young man financially independent and capable of pursuing full-time his compositional ambition. 
a meticulous, notoriously slow worker, Berg completed what he considered his first mature work, his piano sonata Opus 1, in 1908. A string quartet followed in 1910. His five songs for orchestra on postcard texts by Peter Altenberg followed in 1912, and his three pieces for orchestra was completed in 1913. In 1914, Berg began work on his opera Wozzeck, about a soldier driven to madness and murder by the people and world around him. Most ironically, the composition of Wozzeck was interrupted by World War I and Berg's being drafted into the Austrian army. Returning to the opera after the war, in those traumatic days of defeat, financial collapse, hunger, and revolution, Berg was able to bring a degree of insight and empathy to his title character that he could never have mustered before the war. For our information, this is all discussed in detail in the Wozzeck lecture in my great courses slash teaching company course, Music as a Mirror of History. Wozzeck received its premiere on December 14, 1925 in Berlin, and its success vaulted Berg into the highest echelon of Western music. Berg's Originality Berg's originality was rooted in the way he adapted the ultra-modern musical dogma of his teacher, Arnold Schoenberg, to his own artistic needs. Schoenberg's revolutionary music was based on a single, all-powerful, all-generating musical belief that all music sprang from the voice and therefore from melody. To that end, Schoenberg set out to create a musical syntax based entirely on melody and melodic variation and development. He rejected traditional tonal harmony as being an artificial construct that did nothing but constrain melody. He rejected the traditional concepts of consonance and dissonance as being antithetical to free melodic development. Schoenberg called his musical revolution the emancipation of dissonance, but it was really the emancipation of melody. What makes Berg's music so special is the manner in which he fully absorbed Schoenberg's concept of melody and melodic development without ever abandoning the lyric aesthetic of Viennese music, of Mozart, Schubert, and Brahms, and without ever abandoning entirely tonal harmony. So, like the two-faced Janus of ancient religion, Berg's music acknowledges the past as it simultaneously looks to the future. The composer George Pearl put it this way, quote, The special quality that marked Berg's musical language was the conjunction of an emotional intensity that is typical of full-blown romanticism with the most rigorous and abstract modernism, unquote. Yeah, Pearl nails it on the head. Berg's compositional impulse was a 19th century romantic one. Despite his extremely fluid and chromatic approach to tonality, his affection for numerical games and symmetry 
and even his adoption of Schoenberg's 12-tone method in the 1920s. Berg's compositional and expressive syntax never strayed far from that of Wagner, Brahms, Richard Strauss, and Gustav Mahler. Like Wagner, Strauss, and Mahler in particular, Berg thought big and composed in a dramatic, narrative, distinctly theatrical manner. In the words of musicologist Christopher Haley, Berg's works, quote, straddle the divide in ways that redefine such terms as new, modern, and progressive within specifically Viennese parameters. This makes Berg the true center of early 20th century Viennese music, unquote. Let the good times roll. The years following Wolzek's premiere in 1925 were Berg's salad days, or more properly, salad years. Michael Steinberg writes that, quote, Berg traveled to places where his music was being done, carried on a copious correspondence, and read voraciously. He played with his albino dachshunds, laughed at Buster Keaton and Laurel and Hardy movies, cheered himself hoarse at soccer games, was delighted to receive a visit from George Gershwin, and wished in vain that the Austrian government's tobacco monopoly, which had named its most luxurious brand of cigarette Helian, after an opera by Erich Korngold, would call its cheapest brand Wozzeck in honor of his oppressed, underclassed anti-hero. Distinctions and awards came his way. But when the city of Vienna offered him the honorary title of Professor, a big deal in Austria and Germany to this day, he turned it down. Too late, he said, Alban Berg is quite enough." Unquote. Berg began his second opera, Lulu, in 1929. He was close to finishing Lulu in 1935 when two events steered him in a different direction and gave birth to his concerto for violin. In February 1935, the Russian-born American violinist Louis Krasner who had been astounded by Wolczek, offered Berg a commission of $1,500, roughly 30K today, to compose a violin concerto. Berg hesitated. The money was good, but he desperately wanted to finish Lulu. Berg wrote Krasner and told him that the world of Wieniawski and Wotan, 19th century composers of violin concerti who Berg considered lesser lights, was not his world. Krasner responded by reminding Berg that Mozart and Beethoven also composed violin concerti. Then Krasner went for the jugular, suggesting that only Berg could compose a 12-tone concerto lyric and expressive enough to destroy the stereotype of 12-tone music as being, quote, all brain, no heart, unquote. On April 22, 1935, at just the moment Berg was deciding whether or not to take the commission, an event occurred that tragically sealed the deal. The death from polio contracted a year before of the 18-year-old Manon Gropius, 
the daughter of Alma Mahler and her second husband, the Bauhaus architect Walter Gropius. Berg adored Alma, and both he and his wife Helene considered Manon to be their daughter. So close was their relationship. Both Alban and Helene Berg were crushed by Manon's death. Berg's violin concerto became his requiem for Manon. The score of the concerto thus bears two dedications. At the top of the title page reads, quote, for Louis Krasner, unquote. And at the bottom, quote, to the memory of an angel, unquote. Current events also preconditioned Berg to compose a requiem of some sort. He was horrified by the rise of Hitler and Nazism in Germany and understood that it was only a matter of time before the malignancy spread to Austria. By 1935, Arnold Schoenberg, who had been teaching in Berlin, had fled Germany for the United States. By 1935, Berg's music had been declared to be degenerate art and was banned in Germany. The despair that Berg experienced due to these events fed into his concerto as well. How did he do it? For those interested in specifically how Alban Berg managed to compose a 12-tone concerto that sounds so tonal, I would direct your attention to Lecture 21 of my Great Courses slash Teaching Company course, The Concerto. Please suffice it for now to say that Berg's 12-tone row, that sequence of 12 intervals that makes up the pitch language of the piece, is constructed primarily out of thirds, which projects traditional sounding harmonies called triads as it unfolds. Yes, the pitch elements of the concerto are very technical. But what is not technical is the concerto's soaring lyricism and passion, its nostalgia and rage, and in the end, its breathtaking sadness. The concerto is cast in two movements, each of which is divided in half. Movement one is labeled Andante and Allegro. Movement two, Allegro and Adagio. Each of these two large movements features a musical quote. In the first movement, it is a gentle and wistful Corinthian, meaning Southern Austrian folk song, adding a pastoral element that borders on Arcadian, an evocation of heaven. The conclusion of the second large movement, Adagio, is about resignation in the face of the inevitable. Berg begins that final Adagio section with Johann Sebastian Bach's harmonization of the Lutheran chorale, It is enough, Lord, so take my soul. The chorale melody is stated initially in the solo violin, which then alternates with very organ-like winds. Berg chose this chorale for two reasons. One, its first three pitches correspond to the last three pitches of his 12-tone row, allowing him to seamlessly introduce the chorale melody 
as if it were initially part of his row. The second reason he chose it was for its words, words written by the Nuremberg-based poet Franz Joachim Burmeister, 1633-1672. While we never hear the words in Berg's concerto, their spirit and substance reflect Berg's grief for Manon Gropius. Here are those words. It is enough, Lord, if it please you, unyoke me now at last. My Jesus comes. Now, good night, O world. I travel to my heavenly home. I travel surely and in peace. My great distress remains below. It is enough. It is enough. With the entrance of the chorale, a mood of quiet pain and dreamlike mystery pervades the remainder of the concerto, which concludes with a last heartbreaking statement of the Corinthian folk tune, a heavenly ascent in the solo violin, winds and strings, and finally, one last rising and falling arpeggio, which concludes the concerto as it began. Berg's violin concerto will break your heart if you give it even half a chance to do so. In it, the violin becomes our voice and our psyche, and the song of remembrance, nostalgia, grief, and resignation it sings becomes our song as well. The power and beauty of this concerto are off the charts, even though, aside from the Corinthian folk song and the Bach chorale, it is an entirely 12-tone work. Requiem for a heavyweight. Using a gold fountain pen that had been a gift from the author Franz Werfel's sister, Hannah, a woman with whom Berg was surreptitiously in love, Berg composed the violin concerto with a ease and a speed that left him absolutely stunned. And it's well that he did compose it quickly, because the violin concerto was to be his final composition. Just a couple days after he finished it, on August 11, 1935, he was stung by a wasp to which he was allergic. A boil developed, followed by a nasty abscess on his back. Berg's wife Helene lanced it with a pair of scissors, and whether it was the abscess itself or Helene Berg's likely less than sanitary outpatient surgery, Berg developed general septicemia from which in those days before antibiotics, there was little chance of recovery. Surgery and a blood transfusion followed, but to no avail. He died on December 24th, 1935, age 50, never having completed Lulu or heard a performance of his violin concerto. Berg's death mask was cast by Alma Mahler's surviving daughter, the sculptor Anna Mahler. It found its way into the hands of the commissioner of Berg's violin concerto, Louis Krasner. In 1976, Krasner joined the faculty of the New England Conservatory in Boston, where he taught until his death in 1995 at the age of 91. 
He left his archive to Harvard University, and that is where Berg's death mask dwells today, at Harvard's Houghton Library. Recommended recording. I know this is not a Dr. Bob prescribes post, but I can't ask you to read a 2,300-word blog about a concerto and then leave you in the dark as to recommended recordings. Any one of the following three will do quite nicely. I've listed them in order of my preference. One, Itzhak Perlman Violin and the Berlin Philharmonic conducted by Seji Ozawa on Deutsches Grammophon. Two, and sophie Mutter, Violin, and the Chicago Symphony, conducted by James Levine, on Deutsches Grammophon. And three, Isaac Stern, Violin, and the New York Philharmonic, conducted by Leonard Bernstein, on Sony. Thank you. To sample and download one, or all, of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.